0: I don't believe in no one's scenarios.
1: Data, 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 I cannot make bricks without clay. I don't know where you get your delusions, laser brain.
2: (laughs) Hello and welcome to a special Cheeky Scientist radio show. We have a lot lined up today, a very exciting show. We will be talking about salary negotiation. And once again, we are going to start with a panel of PhDs who likely, like you, uh, were looking for a job. They were listening to this radio show. They were coming to our live webinars, to our website. They thought that they couldn't get hired, but they got hired and they did it uh, by negotiating. Negotiation is often the very last step after you've invested a lot of time, a lot of energy. Most PhDs at that point, usually because they have no negotiation experience, just want it to be over with. They can't imagine negotiating. But if you don't negotiate, you violate a social norm, a key social norm that employers expect because it shows a key transferable skill, uh, not only of being willing to be uncomfortable to be able to uh, be professional, but to make deals Business is about transactions, a transaction of value. This is not a bad thing. Just like we always talk about at Cheeky Scientist adding value first, you want to add value first, but you also want to get value in return. And there's a very specific win-win way to do this. So today on today's radio show, we are talking about creating a negotiation map, a salary negotiation map to avoid having your salary anchored low, which often happens to PhDs, or avoid getting rejected. And here's a, here's a hint. You are more likely to be rejected if you do not negotiate your salary. Uh, I guess that's more than a hint. That's the actual punchline of today's show. Let's jump in to our panel now. We have a couple of people that are in the PhD Negotiation League who have agreed to come on with us and talk a little bit about the program before we bring on Don. So I have on Venet and Gene with us. Excited to talk to you both. Gene, good to have you on. Hey, great to be here. Thank you. Thanks for being here too. And uh, so Gene, quick question. Maybe you could just introduce yourself and tell us why you joined the PhD Negotiation League.
0: Yeah, I'm actually a board member for the league and um, I joined after my second transition from academia to industry. Originally I went as a field application scientist in the NGS world. Now I'm a product application scientist, which is very similar in a kind of bigger, more established company. And Perfect. The league wasn't around when I was doing that, but I did learn everything I knew about my negotiations from watching Don Asher's um, videos from the past. So it kind of nice. used a lot of the same strategies that you're going to talk about today, even though they weren't out then.
2: Yeah, exactly. And, and that's why we put together the program with Don, because mm-hmm. um, he's helped so many PhDs around the world. And, and we do appreciate you being a board member, Gene. Sure. I'm going to circle back to you on a, some specific negotiation questions, but I want to introduce Vanit. Hi, Vanit. Good to see you on. If you could just introduce yourself and tell us... Why you join? I know you're a member. why did you join the PhD Negotiation League? It's quite the background you have there. Uh, you're on mute. Let me see if I can unmute. You. I can't unmute. Yeah, I there can. you go. Now I can unmute. That's I right. got you. Yeah,
3: and I think, so first of all, thank you very much for having me on the, on the panel here. And I've been the member for a long time now uh, for the, CSA as well as right recently I became the member of PNL as well so that has been a few months and I have uh, I have done my PhD in molecular medicine I have done postdocs at two places University of Washington okay also in worked with Roche and I am actually right now as a research faculty in the University of Pittsburgh.
2: Perfect. Okay. Well, board member and a member, you both have been trained by Don. So let's focus on that. Right. What, what would you say are some of the uh, most helpful strategies you've learned from Don? Like if you could look back to the gaps you had in your knowledge in terms of negotiation, right. uh, specifically how abundant it is, right? In every aspect of business, every aspect of your job search. Yeah. And then how has Don helped you close those gaps, even if it's some of the biggest aha moments you've had? And I'll start with Eugene.
0: Well, to me, it was never seeing yourself at a cap. Never think I'm only worth 90, I'm only worth 70. The sky's the limit. Whether they have a limit or not, you see yourself as a resource that has no limit. You know your value, you keep your value, and you do nothing but let them know you have an open-ended question to ask why you're not you know able to make this much, to have this many vacation days. Never have a bottom line that you share with anybody. You just keep it open and make it seem like well, God, if you won't give me that, then the next company is going to. So let's get this negotiation going here.
2: Yeah, I love, the, I love what you said at the very beginning there. That's a great way to put it, never seeing yourself as having a cap. And I think a lot of you would agree in attendance that academia kind of does the reverse to us. It uh, gives us a bigger and bigger cap. right? We see ourselves as le- worth less and less. We see ourselves as devalued, which is one of the reasons we talk so much about remembering your value as a Ph.D., how many of you have felt a little bit devalued? Maybe even so much so you thought getting a PhD might have been a mistake in terms of your career. Type in me, if you know what I'm talking about. We've all been there. Um, so changing that mindset's a big part of today and a big part of Don's training. So thanks for sharing that, Gene. Great way to say it. How about you, Vaneet?
3: Yeah, so I actually have the same issue and I've faced exactly the same issues that uh, Gene has described and Every time, even right now today, the situation is: if you want to like get hired in the academia or anywhere else, like it's the less amount of money is being offered. Sometimes I feel that the research associates who do not have a PhD in industry earn way much more than the PhDs, and that's the reason uh, negotiation is very much important. Uh, it not is not only about the perks, but it's also about the visa status, changing the visas, the making uh, another transitions making contributions by the university to, the, uh, to, their, to your retirement uh, funds, actually. So a lot of this needs to be discussed. And most of the academicians or the postdocs in academia really do not know this, actually. And mm. they end up losing a lot of money. And I think, therefore, the, uh, actually, the PNL is the only program which tells you how to negotiate. And I think I have been tremendously benefited. I will share definitely the details as you uh, progress along.
2: Well said. Yeah, and I think your point is extremely important and something we'll touch on today in terms of knowing that everything is negotiable and how much we're, you know, opening your eyes to how much you're leaving on the table, uh, whether it's negotiating um, not just salary, but uh, stock options, uh, retirement, like you said, uh, negotiating uh, relocation, signing bonuses, all these different things that. We've been led to believe, or just through our our long tenure in academia, don't apply to us, but they absolutely do. And uh, it's time for you guys to collect on all your investments. All of you attendees, as I know in academia that we don't really talk that way, but you've invested. You've put all of these uh, all of these investments in the bank, so to speak. You've learned all of these skills. You have tremendous value. You're in demand in industry, likely invisible, or you don't know how to speak the language. You don't know the the uh, social norms to follow, which Don will talk about during your job search and negotiation. But if you learn those, you can collect on these investments. Finally, you've all been seeing people that you went to undergrad with, uh, others who you know that you graduated above or that uh, got into jobs that you know that you can get into higher jobs and yet they're uh, moving forward with their careers. They have retirement accounts. They might have stock options. They're buying houses. You see it all. And you're like, when is it your turn uh, to collect? Well, now it, it is your turn, and we're going to show you how. So thank you very much, Gene. Vineet, appreciate having you on. Thank you, guys. Always good to talk to board members and members of the program um, who you'll be able to interact with in the group. And with that, we're going to bring on Don and get to today's presentations. Don, good to see you. How are you? I'm doing just fantastic, Isaiah. How about you? Good. Always good to hear from uh, other people in the program who
1: have learned from you, Don, and uh, what do you think about those insights from uh, Vanit and Gene? I, I, just, I just love to hear about the, the success of all the members. It's just it's so gratifying to me. You know, uh, some of the stuff that's, that we're teaching is nuanced and subtle, and it's just nice to see people, uh, you know, bright enough and, and ambitious enough to pay careful attention and, and master these techniques, take them out and use them and have success. It's just it's fantastic. I love these stories. Yeah, me too. Uh,
2: so we're going to jump into today's presentation. And we have this slide here that I don't think we've reviewed with Don. It really is it, our team kind of collected all of your uh, your insights here, Don, and put them on this little chart that I think is trying to show how involved uh, the job search process is or how intertwined with negotiation. Maybe you could walk us through this.
1: Sure. I, uh, I like this a lot. So the anchors represent times when you make a mistake that reduces your salary. And the X's are a time when you can make a mistake and simply be rejected for, for, from further consideration. So, uh, you know, the it, 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 in the training, I talk about that the real negotiations happens after you get a job offer, but that's a limited way of looking at what happens because there's all these attempts to negotiate by the other side and mistakes that you can make earlier on. So let's go ahead and start at the beginning. Uh, You start your job search, not knowing how to negotiate for salary will drop your salary. It's just, there's just no question about it. If you don't know what you're doing, you're going to make mistakes that are going to end up with you getting a lower salary. Uh, Then when you apply, uh, you'll run into those screens that say, what are your salary expectations uh, we teach people how to answer those screens, uh, both verbally and uh, most especially online. So you come up to this this uh, this screen, and you can't advance until you respond to it. And we have training on exactly what to do at that point. Uh, and if you answer that wrong, then you're out of contention because at that point you're being handled by an ATS, which is an applicant tracking system, and you give the wrong answer. No human ever sees your application, so you're out. That's uh, that why the X mark is there, and that's a rejection. Then item number three on our, our uh, trip through this game board, so to speak. Uh, If you prematurely initiate negotiations, uh, you should never do this, but if you do it, it it signals to the employer that you're more interested in the salary or the compensation than you are the job, and that will actually kick you out. So you're out there if you prematurely initiate negotiations, and frankly, if you respond to their attempt to prematurely initiate negotiations, uh, there's so many ways to answer the wrong way and the wrong answer at that point knocks you out of contention. Uh, Then moving along to number four, uh, so you're at the interview or possibly uh, sent some screening questions. These days are a lot of things, they'll send you screening questions which you either have to respond to in writing or verbally into a camera. Uh, If you disclose previous salaries, especially if you've been a postdoc or a doctoral student uh, living on a very meager uh, stipend, uh, that's, that's going to kill you. Uh, so that would be a real anchor to what people think you're worth. Uh, and so we talk about how to shut down that inquiry and redirect it to market norms instead of your past history. Uh, so then at the interview, and then uh, if you disclose uh, salary expectations before you have training in how to extract from the other side what the band is, uh, then your salary expectations, when you do not know that band, will always count against you. And that has the chance that you see both the anchor and the X there either lowers your salary potential or kicks you out of contention again, uh, often because of claiming uh, either too high, uh, which no employer wants to believe that you're not going to be happy if they hire you. uh, But even too low can kick you out because if, if they were sitting there with an opportunity that pays 115 and you very foolishly said, gosh, if you know, if you, just bring me on board and I get out of this academy. i do it for 60. Well, that spread is so great that they will assume that your skills are not right. Yes. So going too low or too high, uh, disclosing salary expectations can both uh, form an anchor to your salary potential, but also kick you out of contention. Uh, then moving on to number six, uh, all of our training and from the very first session is about uh, win-win negotiating technique. And so if you get all the way to actual negotiations, which come after the offer, a lot of this before then is psychological. So there's a lot of things happening, but they're not actual give and take gambit and response negotiations. That happens after the offer is on the table. Uh, But if you use a win-lose approach, you use ultimatums. Ultimatums is the enemy of uh, successful negotiations. Uh, So we teach people language that keeps them from doing that. Uh, but also philosophy, and what I love about the program, I say, uh, this is uh, a testament also to cheeky scientists, is that it's research-based. Uh, so it's not just we didn't just go out and ask practitioners, "What do you do?" And, yes. and, which is valid. That's a valid form of research. Uh, but we have social science research to back up uh, pretty much every single technique in question. And we use that social science research to reject some of the recommendations of other people yes. in this field. Uh, but we use win-win, so we get past item number six. Uh, and then we get into the actual negotiating techniques uh, and teach people not to be distracted uh, by muddying the waters, which is a technique that the other side will use It's almost like a magician. Magicians have a thing called misdirection, where they get you to look at a shiny object over here while their other hand is taking out your wallet. Okay, and so that's uh, very similar to this situation. You're trying to increase the base in your wallet and they're making a shiny show over here uh, to distract you. So the techniques uh, in the training program start before you even apply and they end with onboarding. So it's very comprehensive. Uh, It's not just, you know, tit for tat, how to negotiate, how to have a gambit and a response. And so I think it's extremely useful and it's uh, pretty intellectual as well.
2: I mean, how many of you have learned more in this first slide than maybe you've ever learned uh, in negotiation in your entire career? Type in me. Uh, Because I know that I knew nothing (laughs) when I was getting ready for my first job. And looking back, I I missed out on easily tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars, just for simple, simply gaps in my knowledge. And it's a good reason to show this slide. Uh, I think this is a, what I like about this, Don, is it's a very visual way to see how the gap grows. I used to hear people tell me, oh, you can lose a million dollars from not negotiating. But when I was getting a stipend of like 1500 a month, I was like, I, what does that even mean to me? But, but when you see it add up like this from your first job onwards, you're like, oh, just a real small increase, just a, just a real small ask, a few thousand dollars extra starting and doing it fairly consistently every third year can really add up. Can you, can you walk us through this?
1: Yeah, so this, and, 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 and as I've just explained in other trainings, this is a modest version of this. Uh, so I've seen dozens of these and uh, that final total value to you on the right is almost always over a million dollars. So, and some of them as high as two and a half million dollars, uh, just from negotiating uh, that first uh, uh, first job. The, so, the forty-five thousand is pretty close to an entry-level job. Uh, but it, it, this really makes it clear because your base, when it's a little bit higher, all subsequent raises are a, a percentage of that base, and it compounds. Mm-hmm. And through the miracle of compound interest, uh, you actually or compound numbers you end up with a significantly higher annual salary. So that annual salary there at uh, 45 years of employment is about $44,000 every single year. Now, if you put any of that aside, uh, then you know this could go ex- astronomically higher. So uh, there's different ways of measuring it, but this is a huge uh, difference for people. Mm-hmm. But as we talk about in the workshop, it's not just money that you lose by not negotiating. When you don't negotiate, your employer assumes that they overestimated your skill set. And so they'll offer you less challenging assignments. They'll pick someone else for the big offer. Uh, so there's, there's a like opportunity cost that is invisible. And, and here's almost like the, the total irony of it is, even if they don't increase your salary, they respect you more and esteem your skills higher. And this is proven. It's not my opinion. They respect you more and esteem your skills higher, even if they don't budge on the money. And the value to that over your career is significant.
2: Yeah, well said. And just to draw two final points here, because I know a lot of you are going to be looking at the the smaller amounts and the weeds. We used this for a reason because it's likely more than most of you are getting, even as a a postdoc. Uh, You know, I would say 80, 90% of you if you're still in academia. But you can see here that you know if if you don't ask you're you're going to get a 1% raise industry standard automatically but that doesn't even cover inflation and here sarah is not this is not a uh, aggressive schedule like don said she only negotiated for 5000 more to start and then is only negotiating a raise every third year which i'm sure Don has negotiated in the past much more aggressively than every three years. But the point is, is that it's not 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 aggressive. And what I what the final thing I want to draw to your attention, because a lot of you are like, well, the risk is too great for me, I'm just not going to negotiate. You're actually more likely to do damage to your career, like Don said, by not negotiating, because you're violating a social norm. They expect you to negotiate. And some of you are from different countries, etc. You have to you need to get training on this because if you violate these social norms, it is a huge red flag and you're more likely to miss out on the career you're trying to get in the first place, but also future opportunities and you'll lose out on those opportunity costs like Don said. So just a great walkthrough by Don. Um, okay. So Don, so when should we start negotiating salary and, and you know, what, what are the key takeaways
1: from this figure? So... Uh... They may try to initiate a variety of uh, salary tests, you might call them, uh, prior to making an offer to you. But you you should not negotiate at all prior to getting a, an actual offer. And the reason is because you don't have any power. So if, if I let this red pen represent power and I'm the boss, okay, I have the power When we start to interact, I have the power to choose you out of the applicant tracking system. I have the power to take a networking call from you because you have some connection with me. Uh, I have all the power just to stop talking to you at any given moment. But there's a magic transfer of power, and it happens when you get an actual formal offer. And in that moment, that pen belongs to the candidate. And until the candidate says yes or no, then they possess that power. And once they say yes or no, accept or decline, the power actually goes right back to the the boss. So that's why you only negotiate after you have an offer. So a lot of the training is actually not about negotiations. It's about managing the relationship successfully to get to that point when you get that offer. So uh, I hope that uh, people see this as a big picture. Uh, It's not just uh, some different techniques that you might read in a how to buy a car book. This is about how to negotiate a relationship <laughs> and bring that relationship to that offering point and then also negotiate that big money.
2: Yeah, and deflection is a strategy. And it is, it is a strategy you will apply for probably more than half of the job search. Yeah. And it is, a, it is an art, or as Don calls it, theater, uh, which we'll talk about more coming up. Uh, just as much as it is a science. Um, Because there's nuances to the scripts of how they might say, what they might say to paint you into a kind of like a a logical corner where it's really hard for you to come out of um, and they will anchor you low uh, like that first graph, uh, first chart showed. So we have a simplified negotiation map here. So all of you, I want you to think about where you currently are in your job search. I'm guessing most of you are uploading resumes and not hearing anything back. Uh, either way there there are issues and these are very early points where people get stuck on and they commit themselves to uh, the wrong band or the wrong salary. Can you walk us through this and tell tell them what they should do
1: instead? Yeah, so uh, so at an early test uh, they might throw a number at you or demand a number from you. So that's an early test and you can only you can't win these. You can only lose them. So in any interaction where you can't win and you can only lose, try to change the rules. <laughs> so if they say, what salary are you expecting? Yes. A deflection would be something like, well, you know, salary's not my first concern. I'm just really excited to go into this kind of a position in industry. So as long as you can make a competitive offer, uh, I'm going to be perfectly happy with it. That's a deflection. And we, we, we have multiple levels of these. So they're not, we're not just like, here's one. So suppose they say, well, well, what are you expecting? Then you can say, well, what's possible? And if they keep pushing, you can say, well, you know, actually you probably know a a great deal more about this than I do. What do you think would be a successful uh, kind of employment number for me to think about? So the scripts are layered so that, you know, you can not only deal with a continuing pushback, uh, but you can actually even deal uh, with making a mistake. And the classic mistake is to blurt out a number. And I I always teach people, and it's in the training program, if you blurt out a number, do not feel bound by that number. doesn't matter whether the number was put into a a screen on an applicant tracking system or you had a screening interview and they said, well, would you be happy with 70? And you said yes. Uh, It doesn't matter. Where that number came from, I teach in the program how to get out of it and go back and start the negotiations over when you actually have the power, you have the red pen, and it's in your hands. Uh, and so, uh, so the scripts are important, the psychology of it is important, and the, the order is important. And as you called it, uh, and we've called it before, business theater. So there's a way that this goes. People expect it to go this way. If you do the things as we're training you to do them, you're not being odd or unusual. You're doing what they kind of expect you to do. So, And, and I'll go even so far as to once you get to the actual negotiations, I will say this. That's uh, a business ritual. It's a ritual. And if you don't do it, you're violating a protocol. They expect you to negotiate. And when you don't do it, it disturbs them. It's like, well, you're doing something odd, something unexpected, and something a little bit disturbing. Mm. So, So it's business theater, business ritual. There's certain things they expect you to do. And if you know them, this is the beauty to it, Isaiah. If you know them, it's not so scary. You know what you're supposed to do. You do it. They do the thing you expect next. It really relieves the pressure on the job candidate from thinking that they're going to make a mistake.
2: Yeah, I love, I love the way that, I mean, you're describing it, right? If you don't do this right, it's disruptive. It's, uh, it's uh,
1: disturbing.
2: It's, it's disturbing. Thank you. Even better word. It is disturbing. And that wakes people up from the smooth pro- like they want to hire you. If, they, if there's, if they're at a phone screen, if they're talking to you at all, they really want to hire you. And if you don't disturb them from hiring you, you will get hired. They right. even want to negotiate with you. Yeah. They want it to be win-win, but they want to negotiate. They enjoy it. So Don, just quick comparison on average, you know, for a hiring manager recruiter, how many times are they negotiating, uh, you know,
1: versus how many times the average job candidate will negotiate lifetime? <sighs> that's a really important uh, point. So they're doing this every day. So they're negotiating dozens upon dozens of times every year. And you're only going to do this uh, depending on how you negotiate your raises at review, but you're only going to do this maybe five to 12 times in your lifetime. And so they're doing it five to 12 times a month. And so it's, you know, it's important for you to prepare and to recognize that they're prepared. They. They know what they think is going to happen. And so you want to do your part to, to sync up with them and successfully navigate this. But also, this is a classic case where you have to do a little homework. If you only do something 12 times in your lifetime, and that would include negotiating raises at review about 12 times, uh, and they're doing it 12 times a month, you need to do your homework so you can play this game well.
2: Well said. Um, so we've been talking a lot about principles, but you have addressed you know, how those principles get distilled down to strategies. And then of course, scripts. So can you walk us through this briefly, but really touch on maybe a couple of example scripts that, that can make the difference to kind of wake people up? I don't know, maybe if they think they get stuck, you know, somebody says there's a salary cap and they're like, well, there's nothing we can do. Or somebody gets them to uh, commit to a verbal offer or ask them to accept a verbal offer.
1: Okay, so uh, I like this slide uh, series here. Uh, so it, you have to understand uh, principles of negotiation. So uh, the, the guidance that's in the program is theory-based. It's not just made up, by, as I said, by asking people, what do you do? So it's theory-based, and we reveal the theories, and we teach the theories. So you have to understand the basic principles of negotiation, uh, so you uh, so you can make decisions and also so you can respond to novel stimuli. Because if you understand the principles, then, you know, you can make your own uh, navigation through something novel. So uh, one of them is that you, the person who, I'll just give one as an example. The first person to name an exact figure has lost competitive advantage. And we talk about why that is. And this can be proved with game theory. I love working with PhDs because you can get, you know, you can get into things. Uh, but this can be proved with yes. game theory. So the first person to name an exact figure allows the other person to name the second figure and also the midpoint between the first and the second figure. And so you've lost the ability to pick that midpoint when you name a number first. And so I'll I'll leave it there, but there's uh, several other uh, very important principles that guide all forms of negotiations. Uh, Then you have to have a a strategy for interacting uh, with the other side. And so that strategy is how are you going to avoid uh, their attempts to extract knowledge from you, information, and, and still be graceful? So you have to be graceful. You have to, you know, this because we're doing win win negotiations, and there's quite a bit of, of content on the difference between win lose and also known as zero sum game. And and win-win. And we strictly are teaching win-win because of the philosophical reasons behind it are are in the the material. But you're going to have to work with these people in the future. Win-lose creates ill feelings on the other side. And you can't afford that if you're going to go to work for these people. So the strategy has to be set in advance. And then the strategy drives your script choices because you use certain scripts at certain times. Uh, but we've got pretty much uh, everything in there. Uh, so if they uh, push you up against the wall with a salary cap, uh, then there's, there's really easy language to get uh, around that. So, oh, oh, I understand this is uh, the salary cap. So let's talk about a couple of solutions for that if we could, because I feel that uh, it's possible that in my particular case, the salary cap may not be a good application. So uh, maybe we could reposition this position so that it, it it warrants a higher band, or it may be possible that we need to take another look uh, at the comp analysis that led to this uh, positioning. So those are a couple of ways. And then there's just real simple stuff like, well, you know, in in what circumstances in the past have you actually given a higher salary offer to someone doing work like this? And they'll say, and then you say, well, what's the difference between me and that applicant? And uh, so almost no matter what, there's language and theoretical approaches that allow you to get around that blockage. Um, And so even if they say we never negotiate, just say, okay, okay, I understand that's your policy. But when in the past have you actually made a higher offer for someone uh, for a role like this? And they often tell you, and it's often something you never would think about. For example, one company I was working with somebody, and they ran into that. We don't offer more than that. And they said, well, what circumstances have you in the past offered more? And they said, well, if you're bilingual and you're in a market area where that second language comes into play, we give everybody that fits that category a $5,000 bump. And the person said, well, wait a minute, I'm bilingual. <laughs> so, so it's just the scripts are important, but the theory is also, I say it, I just love that it's theory based.
2: Yeah, and I, I think for a lot of you, you're, you're maybe not fully understanding how important it is to get trained on this behaviorally. Right? We are, as PhDs, we're very good at learning something. You know, we 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 have that book smart. We can learn things quickly. We can understand the logic. It makes sense. Perfect. Got it down. But then when you go to apply it, it all falls apart. And when Don says it's it's theater, uh, it means it's behavioral. If you've ever done your first uh, mock thesis defense, for example, you know the difference that a little bit of behavioral practice can make. Uh, And and these people do do it. You know, a dozen times uh, in a month. Sometimes a dozen times uh, in a week. And we're going to do it a couple of times. So you're never going to have that edge on them, but you can understand how it's played and understand what to say and what they want you to say. uh, So you're not disturbing them uh, from that, from that norm. Now this program goes through the entirety of your job search. It's really a blueprint for your job search from the lens of negotiation and deal-making. Don has his PhD. He knows exactly how to frame everything because most of you Uh, are failing in your job search right at the resume stage because you don't even know how to handle, as we've discussed, uh, what salary to put in, what band to put in, and and a thousand other things that come after that. You heard our panelists, one of our panelists, mention never to put a cap on yourself and to keep things open-ended. There's no way to really find out how much is on the table at any given point. We're just showing kind of an example here of what it would look like. And by the way, Uh, We're kind of in a new age now, right? You should be prepared to talk to an employer even by text. It it does happen quite frequently. Uh, You can see the example here of how you can can keep asking open-ended questions uh, to push the salary up or to increase your options. Can you discuss this, Don, uh, or just discuss, I guess, the the theory behind open-ended questions?
1: Yeah, the the beauty of open-ended questions is you can actually find the upper parameter uh, of their offer by using them. Uh, and they keep you out of trouble because, um, you know, the, the concept of anchoring, uh, which is explained in the training, uh, can be abused. And so let's say they want to pay 100 and you'd like to get them to $110. Uh, the classical anchoring would be that you are bracketing as well would be that you demand 120 And that's okay for buying and selling cars and buying and selling buildings, Uh, But it's not really good for negotiating salary. Uh, So because if you demand 120 with the intention of ending up with a 2010 rule at 110, they now believe that you want 120 or you will be unhappy. And Mm. so that's the problem. And so by using this open-ended language, which we have different scripts and different flows to the script, uh, so uh, it allows you to uh, push against that top number and find it without using a number uh, of your own. And it, you, it also keeps people out of trouble that are shooting too low. Uh, a lot of PhDs we know from the uh, we have there, the PNL chat room. On uh, Facebook, that they shot too low. And so the, they ended up getting hired at as much as 20 and even 40,000 less than the employer would have been able to uh, pay them and would have been happy to pay them. And uh, so that creates a, a problem. But that open ended language allows you to probe and find that upper limit without naming a number and without compromising the relationship absolutely and
2: and don mentioned the workflow this is where things this is where the training comes in okay a lot of you are you're picking different strategies that don is saying which is important but if you haven't practiced them behaviorally and if you haven't practiced them sequentially right uh, then you're in trouble and there's also these key pivot points there's these nuances no negotiations the same uh you know if they because they can give a different answer they can say yes no maybe uh, so what do you follow up with? And very often it's another open-ended question. Uh, right. can, can you do anything more in terms of salary? Uh, very often, We've seen this over and over again in the group. They come back immediately without even giving another number and, and do 5,000, $10,000 more immediately. And I know that seems amazing to a lot of you, but it's so commonplace. Uh, it's, it's really surprising. And if they say no, you just say, okay, is there anything more you can do instead of salary? All from Don's teaching. Um, so let's get to these, these four elements of negotiation. Don, I think uh, this framework is important because it helps everyone here uh, not just know what to focus on, but what not to focus on, All right? So these, these four elements, people, interest, options, criteria, can you talk about why these are, these are important and why um, the, these are the, the elements that, that we should be using within our framework of
1: negotiation? Sure, I'd love to. I really like this. Uh, so I'll just go through each one. Uh, so when you're, when you're interacting in a negotiations setting, uh, never criticize the person and don't penalize them either. And uh, I see this done very poorly in politics all the time. Uh, what you want to do is, is uh, separate the people uh, from the problem. The, the, the negotiations might identify a problem, but that person is not the problem. The problem is not the person. And so that puts you on the same side of, uh, of addressing the problem. You can actually enlist that person to help you address the problem. So it's, uh, you, you never want to identify the other side as the enemy. And uh, it, it, there's reasons to do that, but only if your intent is for the negotiations to fail. So as, as somebody that has read deeply in this area, there are many times when you actually want negotiations to fail, uh, especially in a diplomatic setting. Uh, But if you want to come to conclusion, don't mix up uh, the other person uh, with whatever problems you have or barriers between you and your goal. So number two, uh, focus on interests, not positions because positions are concrete and interests are fluid and and flexible. So uh, by appealing to someone's interests, you can get them to give up their position. So if you, if you have a conflict with their position, that can become a thing between you, but if you identify with their interests, you can ex- you can explain to them and influence them uh, to see another way to satisfy their interests uh, and, and not hang on that position, and the same thing goes for yourself. By by uh, by getting locked in, and we've talked about this, you and I have talked personally about it, Isaiah, that some PhDs get locked into winning, and they, they, they may go in and say, well, I've yes. got to have 100K. Well, if they give you 96k and a brand new Beamer, take it. (laughs) Be happy. So we talk about how to find how to find multiple ways to satisfy your interests without obsessing on positions. Uh, Next is uh, options. Uh, This is where creativity comes into play. I work with top executives on negotiating salary. Uh, I worked uh, not too long ago with a guy that went from 200K to 500K uh, by coming up with creative options that they would agree to. And so uh, this, is, this is where real creativity comes into play. You should never get stuck on any particular thing. There's another way to solve it. If you don't get the salary, uh, get some other perk or benefit. Uh, there's a lot of odd perks and odd benefits um, you know, a student loan remission is kind of big right now. You can negotiate that completely separately from your salary. So, uh, we talk about all the things that you can negotiate. And most of all on this topic, we talk about the order that you negotiate in, which I think is coming up in a minute in your slide deck. And then finally, you want to use objective criteria. Uh, and so let's uh, let's show what subjective criteria is subjective criteria is what you feel that you need that's you and they don't care about that uh, they care about objective criteria we talk about and this actually works to your advantage because uh, if they try to push it that oh well you at your postdoc role you your you're working there for forty-eight thousand. You know why in the world would we pay you one hundred and ten? Objective data is that one hundred and ten is the market rate for this kind of position. So objective uh, data is you need to come up with that. Uh, but not only do you come up with it, we teach you how to find it, uh, but we teach you how to present it too. If you present objective data yes. uh, in certain formats, uh, it takes on a power of its own. And so you never want to say, I need more or I want more. You want to say the market rate for a position like this is X for these reasons that I'm about to present to you. And this is something that all of you are very good at.
2: Uh, You can really lean into this aspect of the four elements, the criteria. And we're going to move on to a few tactics. And that's what we'll have to end with are these uh, tactics coming up. One of them's The briefcase tactic, we'll come back to that. And it's something that all of you can really, really leverage given your your background in dealing with uh, data. Uh, But let's talk about some of these tactics, Don. So I think we've covered the high level, but I also wanna discuss some of the practical things that, that people can walk away with that are actionable. So the nibbling tactic, right? And this, I like this one for PhDs because it makes things, it shows that you need to be less formal in many cases. More open-ended. Well, uh, is there anything more we can do? In this case, uh, nibbling, uh, conversational. Can you give us some examples of of how you've used this in the past and what it is?
1: Yeah, yeah. So this is also called the Columbo technique from a a television show that used to be popular in the United States a long time ago. Uh, And uh, so he was famous for he's in the doorway. He's a detective, right? He's in the doorway. He's leaving. And he turns around and he always said, oh, there's just one more thing. Right, right. (laughs) So that's the nibbling technique. I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, It's you you ask for something relatively small, and it's it's really kind of the very last thing you throw on the desk. And you might say, you know, I noticed that you give an $80 uh, commuting allowance uh, to either buy gas or to buy uh, a a ticket on the train. uh, But I ride a bike. And so I, I see you have bike racks. So how about if you just take that 80 bucks a month and stick it on uh, my base salary, that'd be great. So it's a little tiny thing you asked for. The very last thing you asked for, it's no big deal. And then you just increased uh, your uh, pay by uh, whatever 80 times 12 is. I'm going to quit doing live math. I'll say I got in trouble last time for that. <laughs> That's internet. the nibbling technique, uh, and, and, and this adds up. Uh, yeah. And you can do it until they run out of guesses.
2: Yeah, exactly right, and it is very, very effective. Now, the briefcase technique um, will make more sense to you. I'm surprised how many PhDs don't realize that this is an advantage that they have, and they don't take just a little bit of extra time to do it. You know, one, one little piece of paper, one little document, uh, but – I don't want to spoil it. What what is a brief briefcase technique and maybe an example of how you've seen it used effectively?
1: Yeah, PhDs are good at this. You're exactly right. So you take your data that you're using as a verbal argument and you put it in a visual form. So a tremendous amount of research has proved that uh, people uh, view graphs, any data presented in graphs, as more authoritative than the exact same data reported verbally. So uh, I'll just give you an example. Uh, You might make a bar graph that shows, you know, typical pay for a a PhD, a typical pay uh, for a a, a customer's uh, product manager in this field, and then your offer. And so here's the PhD pay and here's typical pay in the field. And here's your offer down here. And it was all data that you already possessed. Uh, mm-hmm. But you're going to go ahead and present it as a bar graph, circle graph, uh, some kind of visual presentation. Uh, and you are your own authority on these. You, don't, you, you created this data uh, infographic. Uh, So you don't need to have a printout from the New York times or the wall street journal or the chronicle of higher education, just build it yourself and then give it to them. Yes. And so it it carries several roles. One is that you're presenting visual data, which has more authority, but number two, you have a, a, anything you leave behind, Uh, reminds them of you, uh, and if you do, you know, a good job on it, uh, it allows them to take that to some other decision maker that may not be in the room and say, you know, she's right. I mean, we're we're lowballing on this assignment, and we've really got to come come up to the market. Hmm. So that's an example of the briefcase technique. Uh, Basically, it boils down to creating your own uh, authority uh, with visual data. And I love that last part because
2: sometimes you want to help the other person make your case, make it easy for them because very often they're going to whoever the real decision maker is, right? It might be a HR person going to whoever, you know, their HR boss or maybe even the head of that department. If they want to use the departmental funds, you know, take a little bit, a little bit higher for that candidate. I love that. Um, great takeaway. Okay. Anchoring. <laughs> uh You know, been a lot published on this recently, but a lot of PhDs really have no idea how to use this in negotiation. Uh, Can you
1: break it down for us? Yeah, we we looked at this research. And uh, so the research was uh, done, uh, a, a lot of it that people are quoting, with college students and fake money. And I, I have been arguing for years that you cannot take all the research on negotiations and use it in a real-world setting mm-hmm. because a tremendous amount of it is done uh, using uh, techniques from uh, experimental psychology. And there's nothing wrong with these techniques, but you have to, you have to see, uh, will they apply in a real-world setting? So anchoring is when you uh, put a big number far out, uh, and, and then that influences, it's, a, it's really a form of priming. Uh, you put a big yes. number far out, and, and then you're you're going to be satisfied because it moves the actual numbers that you're negotiating further toward that big number. And I'll use an example because it's it's really easy to understand if you hear it this way. Uh, if if you're, and this is what they wanted you to do is if you wanted a hundred, you would go in and say, well, I want 150. Uh, well, that just violates every form of win-win negotiations possible. It's just a right. disaster. So yes. we, we modified this. We dug deeper into the research and we found ways to use language that does anchor, uh, but you do it by uh, almost teasingly, jokingly putting a high number on the table, even a ridiculously high number, uh, such as I'd love to make a million dollars uh, a year. And I, I think in some ways I'd certainly be worth it. But, you know, realistically, you know, what can we do? OK, now I just anchored to a million dollars without pissing off, to be blunt. Uh, my uh, colleague here, my negotiating partner. And so that's why you want to have uh, negotiations training that's based on win-win and based on salary negotiations. Because if you were to follow some of the advice that's out there in the research and in some of the other books, my goodness, you would be making a, a severe social mistakes. So that's anchoring. You use language that's vague Uh, you don't normally say a a specific number unless it's a ridiculous thing like a million bucks Uh, but the worst thing in the world you could do is read that research and walk in and tell somebody you need 150 when what you want's 100 because that would be that would be a fail yeah well
2: said and again this comes down to understanding what to do behaviorally and don't under I mean how many of you feel like during your job search already right or maybe you're in a different country whatever it is like you've somehow violated some sort of social norm, but you didn't know that you violated it. Things just shut down. Like maybe a recruiter stopped talking to you and you don't know why. Maybe a job search stopped and you don't know why. If you've ever had that experience, that's what we're talking about. And understanding what you need to do and why really matters. There's no way around this. Like you can't, there's no just purely objective, one size fits all path forward. You have to learn this behaviorally. So uh, two more quick ones, higher authority tactic. Why is this useful once you start, you know, getting and talking numbers and making uh, counteroffers, etc.? Uh, how, how is this helpful and where might our attendees have already uh,
1: witnessed this in action? So the higher authority is a, a kind of a version of a good cop, bad cop uh, mm-hmm. uh, thing. It's you, you actually seek information from someone not in the room. So, uh, so you, my classic example is uh, I want to run this by my financial advisor. So your financial advisor is not in the room. So, uh, you know, you've taken this as far as you could go, and maybe they have said, we can't go any higher. And then you're, you're going to make this appeal to the financial advisor is not in the room. The negotiations are still open. So you haven't said you're going to take the job. And that gives you a chance to go out and then come back, and you can say, "Well, my financial advisor says that this isn't quite where it needs to be yet." And that person, they can't do anything. You're the you're the interpreter of that higher authority. So it's a it is also a way to keep from agreeing to something in a room if you've been pushed around a little bit. Maybe you need a couple, three days to think this over. So it's just a, a good way to to gracefully get out of the room and and let it let this offer gel with you so so that if a spouse is another version of this i need to go home and discuss this with my spouse i'm not sure what she will think about this when we were talking about manhattan i thought you meant new york city now that i realize we're talking about kansas i need to really think this over so your higher authority can be a financial advisor it can be a spouse um It could be a professor. You know, I want to run this by my management professor. She's really brilliant. Uh, I think just a a conversation with her would make me at ease. So that's an example of appealing to a higher authority that's not in the room. Yeah, perfect.
2: And uh, just by the way, we're at the top of the hour. Very last chance to join and get these two programs uh, for substantial discount. I think you'll you'll end up saving over $1,000 off the list prices, 1000 and went, and $98 exactly. I do want to talk about this, Don, this comes up a lot. And I, I think there's a lot of, um, you know, we, we've heard from or different organizations, such as women in science, et cetera, and seeing the sta- stats on uh, how challenging it can be uh, uh, for a, a woman to get the, the, the wage that they deserve uh, and to negotiate in general. And this is a strategy that came up in the literature. And I think it's a good one to end on if you could walk us through it.
1: Yeah. So uh, it, 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 no matter what you think gender relations should be, we live in an actual world. Mm-hmm. And in that actual world, uh, women that use the exact same language as men sometimes get penalized uh, are seen as uh, uh, difficult. That's wrong. As a, as a feminist man, I believe that's wrong. But there's a workaround. And this workaround uh, came from women. Uh, and it's where you negotiate on behalf of uh, someone else or some societal issue Uh, and so there's we have the research that backs this up uh, that is that the women are way more comfortable kind of really going into the negotiations and negotiating hard on behalf of all women or on behalf of their family as two examples uh, than they are simply saying I want more and I think I'm worth more so I'll just read this because you can see how clever it is it's very effective. I've read that a major cause of the gender-based wage gap is that women don't negotiate for salary as often as men. So because I want to do my part to reduce this social problem, I guess I'll force myself to ask, can you raise this base? Would you give me the same base as a man who negotiated hard for the maximum? I love this. This works, it's very effective. Uh, The women that I work with that use it tell me it works every time. Uh, and so this is an example of what we 've done in the program we 've really dug deep to find techniques that work for people in the real world and result in successful outcomes and i 'm proud of the programming, and, and I enjoy supporting it as well in the PNL uh, Facebook group.:
2: Yeah, thank you, Don. Great, great presentation today. I think the best by far. Don, thank you for your time. Congratulations, Congratulations on the very successful program. Thank you again for being on the radio show and for providing your insights. This takes us to the end of this show. You can learn about this program and all of our programs at CheekyScientist.com. If you are new to your job search, you don't know which position is right for you, you can go to PhDsGetHired.com. That's plural, PhDs gethired.com to learn more about our flagship program, the Cheeky Scientist Association that has helped thousands of PhDs around the world get hired. It'll train you on the basics of your job search and help you find the right position for you. As always, remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. Isaiah Henkel, the founder of Cheeky Scientist and the creator of the Cheeky Scientist Association. I wanted to quickly tell you that memberships into the association are available to PhDs listening to Cheeky Scientist Radio by using the coupon code CHEEKYRADIO at www.phdsgethired.com. That's phdsgethired.com, PhDs. G-E-T-H-I-R-E-D dot com. Simply type PhDsgethired.com into your website browser. Scroll down to the orange membership button and click on it. Then enter the coupon code Cheeky Radio to get 20% off a lifetime membership now. That's Cheeky Radio C-H-E-E-K-Y-R-A-D-I-O. Remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. Are you worried about the rapidly shrinking job market? Like me, have you been seeing more and more articles on universities shutting down their research labs, furloughing employees, cutting postdocs and TAs, and even withdrawing PhD student funding? If so, it might be wise to start taking steps to protect your PhD career. You've worked very hard and very intelligently for years to establish yourself, but likely, you have not reached your full career potential yet. Perhaps you're not even getting respect and you're not getting the rewards that you deserve. The good news is you can get into an industry career where you can get paid well for doing meaningful work. All you need is the right knowledge and the right network. The Cheeky Scientist Association gives you lifetime access to the world's number one PhD-only job search training platform with multiple courses. and the PhD-only job referral network of over 10,000-plus industry PhDs. Now is your chance to become a lifetime member for 20% off of the association. Just use the coupon code CheekyRadio at www.phdsgethired.com. That's PhDsgethired.com. P-H-D-S-G-E-T-H-I-R-E-D.com. Simply type phdsgethired.com into your website browser, scroll to the orange membership button and click on it Then enter the coupon code Cheeky Radio to get 20% off a lifetime membership now. No recurring monthly fees, no recurring annual fees. Nobody else offers this. PhDsgethired.com. Use the coupon code Cheeky Radio. Remember your value as a PhD and remember that knowledge is power. And your net work is your net worth.